0: on this episode of African Retooled.
1: How do we get people to see farming as a profitable investment that can be done in the rural areas? Because let me ask you, on a 50 acre piece of land, you're generating a net profit of uh, north of uh, maybe 1.2 million shillings a month. Mm-hmm. If you're earning 1.2 million a month living up country, what kind of quality of life do you have? A yeah, very good one. Exactly. But the thing is that, you know, How do we then sell that image to more and more people?
0: Do you have the tools to face the future? Welcome to African Retooled. A podcast where Chris and Martin, two African recruiters, will explore the changing world of work.
2: Where students come to learn and gain insights into the world of work. Discover how they can continue to tool themselves with skills of the future, where managers will explore with us how to confidently navigate the complexities of future work in order to be key disruption agents and remain competitive. Where CEOs, business owners come to understand the evolution of work, allowing them to leverage on emerging roles and remain competitive and achieve their objectives.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of African Retooled. You're with me, Martin. And Chris, how are you doing, Martin? I am doing great. How How is it going on your end with your moustache? Has it grown
2: any bigger? My moustache has certainly grown bigger. Today <laughs> we are far apart, so you obviously can't see me. Thank goodness. <laughs> so we've reverted back to the distant... Um, yes. What do you call it, Martin?
0: It's uh, the physically distant show.
2: There you go. So, Physically Distance through PDS.
0: Yes, there you
2: go. And um, so, this particular uh, um, episode, if you like, is, is one where we're looking to tackle a very interesting subject. I mean, we don't have that much knowledge on this topic, but as always on the show, we're looking to pick up on topics which we feel can be of benefit to our listeners. Obviously, we're doing a series of conversations with leaders, and so we're tackling agriculture and agriculture is the bedrock of africa it, it is, is what it is it is what um what feeds us it is i mean we have the richest the richest land and richest arable land in the world mm-hmm. however martin believe this or not um we have 250 million people across africa who are undernourished in, in Africa. It's just mind-boggling, I think. It's mind-boggling, and and, and that's because obviously there's a number of reasons. Obviously, mm.
0: um,
2: it's it's a bit sad because in the 1960s we were able to feed ourselves, we were self-sustaining, but today we're not importer. Oh um, we, we don't. We're not able to take care of ourselves, and it's not. It's not. It's not any. The, the statistic is not good because um, um, we are still growing. Our populations are still. Um, likely are going to double in the next couple of years. Yep, exactly, exactly.
0: And and yeah, you see, and it's 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 so dear to us because when you think about it, um, some of these statistics that that we are looking at, um, shows that about sixty percent, of, of farming is is done by smallholders, which means generally smallholder farmers. You yeah, smallholder farmers. Exactly. Mm, which mm. means then that that somebody you know, somebody close to you, um, could be a farmer, your neighbor. Uh, your auntie, your uncle and 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 so these issues are affecting them and affecting you and me directly
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and like you said it's we're coming already from a very fragile place where um like we said as, an, as a continent we're not able to feed ourselves or have not been feeding ourselves we are, we're having to import quite a bit mm-hmm. obviously um, over time um things like oil tourism are now being are now struggling mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, triggered by the covid situation yeah but even recently um we had an issue with locusts. um climate change is a real challenge Mm. so all of these things bedeviling the the industry you can imagine um some of these vulnerable people are likely to to even be in a worse position exactly exactly there's a a huge knock-on effect yeah, and now and now we have borders being shut down. Mm. Um, trade is being curtailed across the continent and across the globe. Supply chains are are impacted, and so the questions are: um, How is this? How is agriculture going to sustain? Mm-hmm. Um, what are, are there any innovative things that are happening in that space that we need to be aware of? Is this something we should actually pay attention to going forward?
0: Mm. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and I think we have just the guest to talk to us about that. Um, today, we are privileged to have with us a truly Pan-African leader. I mean, this guy has very deep experience in the FMCG space, having looked after Coca-Cola business in East, West, and Central Africa. Um, he's also served on the global team that created Africa's largest Coca-Cola, Bottler. Um, wow. He has been voted among the top 100 Young leaders by well in Africa by Forbes Afrique and top 40 and a 40, not once, not twice, but three times by the Business Daily in Kenya. Wow, he has brought all this rich experience to bear by co founding an innovative technology driven agribusiness platform. So, Chris, please welcome uh, to the show the CEO and co founder of Twiga Foods, Peter Jonja. Thank you so much Peter for joining us. Um we'll we'll just get get right into it. Uh you know, you as a business leader, of course, this this whole situation around COVID has just uh, taken everyone by storm. Um and and people are trying to to deal with it in different ways. How have you um, been through this? How have you stayed sane? No, thank you so much uh,
1: for that question. I think the key thing is around uh ensuring that uh as a business leader, you're also being mindful about your mental health mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, you cannot give what you don't have. You know, and, and the key thing is that if you really think about how we were operating before, you know, we compartmentalized our lives. Mm-hmm. There's time that we spent uh, at work, there's time that we spent socially, there's time that we spent at home. But now you're essentially restricted to one place. And the only vehicle that you have is, uh, is a digital tool where you're supposed to then connect to the rest of the world. And, and essentially, how do you then continue uh, living a balanced life or a meaningful life uh, in, in that type of existence? And the key thing is that, you know, what I've done is that uh, I've looked at my life in, uh, in three, big, uh, three big buckets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing is around uh, my family. And the reason why my family is important, you know, I'm, I'm married with four kids. And, um, and the reason why uh, my, my family life is important is because uh, mm-hmm. their happiness uh keeps me true to my purpose it gives meaning to whatever it is that i do on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. they're also going through a lot of uh, unprecedented change you know be it schooling from home or working from home there's so much going on so i have to ensure that you know i'm engaging meaningfully with my family to ensure that you know they're also in a happy place as we go through this journey uh the second piece is that you know i need to keep connected to, uh, to an ecosystem that allows me to continue learning. Mm. So, and I know for many of us, you know, things like webinars and all have become uh, like, you know, part of, uh, part of our life. And there's just so much content out there. All you do is you just need to reach out. There's so many business leaders just sharing a lot of ideas, being very, very liberal in their thinking. And, uh, and I think the key thing is that you really need to tap into that because even during this period, we need to keep on growing. And then, of course, uh, the third piece is uh, I need to then uh, uh, focus on uh, the business. Uh, but, uh, but the key thing is that, you know, even as I focus on the business, it's about also stepping out a little bit and trying to understand what is happening in the ecosystem because everybody is going through an unprecedented time. Mm-hmm. And this is a period to be a little bit more reflective. So what is it that we need to uh, do to deal with the crisis that we have? And what you find is that, You know, there's really not one strategy or a set of rules that you can operate with during this period. It's a period where you have to be very, very iterative. Your strategy has to be iterative to ensure that you know you're taking advantage of opportunities as they come. And some of the things that you try will fail. Uh, But the key thing is that you need to quickly recover from that and move on to the next thing. So a very, very iterative way of doing things. And by doing that, uh, what you find is that... uh, you know it kind of keeps you uh it keeps you whole as a, as a business leader and then you have something that you can offer uh to the organization in the form of leadership
0: that's that's just very very well put um i think those are those are golden nuggets uh for anyone out there listening thank you so much for that one um if, if you're looking at, at agro and agribusiness as it were uh being a leader in that space, what what are some of the learnings you you have taken of the significant shifts that have happened and, and are, are, are giving you lessons that you're taking with you, not just in, in this period, but you think you'll also take forward going on uh, after this?
1: Well, I think the thing is that uh, there are uh, definitely lessons to be learned. One of the big lessons is around the type of farming that will make us food secure. Right. You know, and I think a lot of uh, people out there always come up and say, you know what, we need to focus on smallholder farmers, uh, we really need to ensure that smallholder farmers are, are tooled. You know, the key thing is that, you know, one thing I realized in Kenya is that, you know, the average age of a smallholder farmer is 60. Mm-hmm. So, so the key thing is that unless we start thinking about uh, ways in which, which are, we are attracting young people into farming. The reality is that uh, we have uh, an aging farming population, which essentially is not very comforting in terms of food security. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I learned is we need to move away from the narrative around smallholder farmers and start thinking about uh, large farms. And when I talk about large farms, this is divorcing the idea of ownership from the size of a farm. And the reason why I say that is, you know, you can get many smallholder farmers come mm-hmm. together to create a large farm. Right. And that large farm is more efficient, is, uh, going to have higher yield and it's going to be more profitable. For example, in Kibwezi, we just signed up uh, a group of farmers with uh, 60 acres. They mm-hmm. came together, they put 60 acres together and we want more stories like that because what happens is assuming that, the, the 10, uh, the 60 acres constituted 15 farmers. Yeah. If they're all doing this farming separate, that's fifteen boreholes. Yeah, that's fifteen irrigation systems. That's fifteen managers managing mm-hmm. small pieces of land. There's no way you will become profitable in that type of setting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why, when you look at farming, uh, when you ask most people about farming, what they envision is their grandmother farming a small piece of land up country.
0: Yeah, correct.
1: And the key thing is that we want to move away from that to farming being seen as a business. Mm-hmm. The same way you have real estate, the same way you have other investments that you're able to make in, uh, in urban uh, cities. How do we get people to see farming as a profitable investment that can be done in the rural areas, which actually makes it more attractive even for people to move away from, uh, from the urban areas back into the rural areas? Because let me ask you, mm-hmm. you know, on a 50 acre piece of land, you know, you're generating a net profit of uh, north of uh, maybe 1.2 million shillings a month. Mm-hmm. So if you're generating that type of profit, don't forget land in that uh, country is, uh, is much, much cheaper and you can also lease. Yes. If you're earning 1.2 million a month living up country, what kind of quality of life do you have? A yeah, very good one. Exactly. But the thing is that, you know, how do we then sell that image to more and more people and actually start encouraging people to come together and start farming in, uh, in larger blocks. Because when we farm in larger blocks, the yield is higher. The efficiency is greater because at the end of the day, remember Kenyans are spending Ken- before COVID Kenyans were spending 55% of their disposable income on food, mm-hmm. that means that there was of course, uh, a much well-to-do, uh, group of individuals. Who are spending maybe 5%. And then you have another group of individuals uh, that are spending 75%. Mm. The guys spending 75% of their disposable income on food i'm leaving hand to mouth. Right. So the key thing is that, you know, for farming to be successful, it has to be efficient so that we can lower the price of food. Because I strongly feel that right now, there's essentially uh, maybe a 2x. Uh, opportunity in volume because a lot of people are consuming one meal a day instead of two instead of three Mm -hmm. and if pricing were to come down chances are they would afford to buy food more frequently so the key thing is that when we think about farming it's not just producing quantity it's about being efficient and lowering the price of food that's essentially what's going to make us food secure because it doesn't matter if uh, the whole of nairobi there's vendors around selling tomatoes, onions, potatoes and all that and you can't afford it. So that food is useless because it's out of your price range. Yeah. So there's an element around affordability to make us food secure and that's essentially what we're focusing on as trigger. Yeah. But our purpose, our reason why we exist is to lower the cost of food in urban cities and improve the quality of the same.
2: Yeah. So I, I, th- I think, Peter, I totally agree with you um, that food security is indeed um, something that we need to um, work towards um, improving the current situation. And we were, we were looking at some of the numbers earlier with, with Martin. I mean, 250 million people across Africa are undernourished. I mean, it's, it's unacceptable for a continent that is as rich as ours. And, and because of this, there seems to be general consensus across Africa, especially with the leaders, um, that they need to do something different with regards to transforming agriculture. At least that's what we're seeing. So the question is, what then bedevils our countries? And this might be an, an unfair question to ask you. But then what, what is the missing, what's the missing piece? Because we, we all seem to be very clear that this is something that we need to sort out. Um, we need to come up with measures. They even come up with very specific measures, but we don't seem to get it right.
1: No, I have a very good answer to that because essentially it's what we leave every day. The main challenge of this uh, issue is that our domestic markets are not structured. So when you think about say, for example, South Africa, you know, you have large scale agriculture there. Actually, consumers in South Africa spend about 16% of their disposable income on food. But the thing is that there's about seven to eight retailers that control 60% of the market, the retail market, the big supermarkets. So it's very easy for these big supermarkets to organize themselves and say, you know what, we're going to essentially buy everything that the farmers produce. So if you're there in your farming, you have a purchase order from ShopRite, you have a purchase order from Pick and Pay or Spa or Woolworths. So it's very easy to know this is where I'm taking my product. And it's a guaranteed contract, which means that now, with the formalization of that value chain, it's easy for you to go get financing to actually invest in farming. Now, think about all the countries uh, north of the uh, Limpopo and south of the Sahara, which is essentially uh, the belt that has uh, one of the highest, uh, maybe population segments on the continent. And what you find is that the rate of informality of uh, the retail market is very, very high. In Kenya, 90% of the food is actually bought on the streets. Mamamboga, Kiosk, Dukar, you know, that's, that's essentially where we buy uh, most of uh, most of our food, and this situation is uh, repeated across the continent. You know, I had the fortune of uh, working for Coca Cola, so I directly managed uh, close to forty countries directly across uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and I can tell you that you know most of these countries are very very similar in terms of a retail structure. So when you have that type of uh, retail structure, for example, Nairobi say give and take about five and a half to six million people, if you think about the larger Nairobi metropolis. And when I'm talking about the larger Nairobi metropolis, I'm talking about, think about maybe Atiriva, Machakos, Kika, Kiambu, that whole belt, right? Because it's all interconnected. Right. Uh, 180,000 retailers. So when you're thinking about 180,000 retailers who control 90% of the market, how are you going to get financing as a farmer to provide large-scale farming, to sell into that market. It's impossible. Most banks will not bank on that because the thing is that they look at your 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 value chain and, and really there's there's really no end in sight in terms of who are you selling to? Do they have the power to buy? Or are you gonna invest in all this and you're gonna say that you don't have market? So right. if you look at financial institutions in Kenya and you look at their balance sheets, They've only lent about uh, 25 to 3% of their balance sheet to agriculture. And we normally say that agriculture accounts for 30% of the GDP. So why underfund the the rest of the 27.5% or 28% or 29%? And the reason that is the case is because it's not structured. And the guys who actually have been financed are only exporters. All the people with purchase orders from big supermarkets abroad. And then if you look at government, yes, we have the narrative around uh, agriculture is important. But if you look at uh, government spend on uh, agriculture, essentially it's about uh, uh, less than 4%. It's about 3.8, 3.9%. And that amount has been dropping over the last uh, 10 years. It's been growing in absolute terms. But if you look at the percentage of government expenditure on agriculture, it's also been dropping. Mm-hmm. But if you look at where the government has spent their money, essentially, is on uh, subsidies and uh, support on fertilizers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, so when you really think about it, the big issue around uh, agriculture in Sub-Saharan Africa is that it's not structured. And if you don't solve the issue of structure, you will never attract the financing that's required to uh, stimulate the production side. Mm-hmm. And that's what essentially we do as Trigger. Our mission is aggregating retail, because mm-hmm. I feel that if we aggregate this retail
2: using technology we can then organize efficient supply chains that are bankable. And obviously there's, there's the issue of access to finance, which, which, you, which you're tackling by creating the structure. But how do you deal with um, the issue of scale, the issue of, um, um, I know you're dealing with access to markets as well, but there's an issue of, of capacity that even if you are to ask these farmers to come together, they're so used to a particular way of doing things. So um, how are you tackling that?
1: I'll give you an interesting uh, insight Uh, about uh, three months ago, we put a newspaper advert and we said that we wanted farmers with uh, over 50 acres of land who are able to finance themselves to uh, mobilize that land and have some sort of uh, management expertise that can manage uh, those farms. You know, for us, it was a punt, it was a gamble. We didn't know what we were going to get. You'd be surprised that we were only seeking a total of 4,000 acres of land. Today, as we speak, our pipeline is 60,000 acres of land with people willing to finance their own farms to get into large-scale agricultural production. And that number Mm -hmm. is growing every day because a lot of people are realizing that professional farming can be profitable. But the key thing is that if companies like Trigger are helping aggregate the market, then uh, that's creating an opportunity to actually get into farming right and that's a revolution that we want to start because we know that once this wheel starts to turn the money will come people will come and they want to finance farmers
2: i think i totally agree with you i think the the biggest challenge i see now in in light of the current um, situation and we were just talking about that earlier with martin um what was very clear was with all these agreements um, across africa the, the the agreement was that we would then bolster intra intra country trade, and I assume that is some of the interventions that once we once we uplift the agriculture situation, then we begin to export across Africa. But now with borders being being closed, with trade being curtailed, um, what what's your view? I would like you to decelerate some of these um, trade. Or what what do you see? And as you saw recently. Kenya has closed its border with Tanzania and Somalia. So are we likely to see a a backward trend? Well, I think circumstances will force us to to talk and open up uh, borders.
1: The reason why I say that is when you look at the global impact of COVID, you can look at it in four quadrants, right? Mm -hmm. You can assume that maybe globally we will not see a resurgence of COVID, Mm -hmm. which is great. Or the second scenario is we can actually have a wide scale resurgence of COVID globally, right? Those are two scenarios. And those two scenarios are going to affect Africa in different ways, because don't forget everything that we're exporting, we're exporting where? To this uh, global markets, right? Then on the Africa side, you can look at two scenarios. One scenario is that maybe uh, COVID will not be as uh, prevalent. And then the other scenario is that, you know, we'll have actually wide scale infection of a population, right? Which mm-hmm. essentially will overwhelm the healthcare system and all. Right. Now, when you look at those t- t- scenarios and, and have a two by two quadrant or two by two matrix, if you look at the extreme side and say that, okay, you know what? Um, maybe we're going to have a scenario where, Uh, there's going to be a global resurgence of uh, infections and we will have mass infections in Africa, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you're to look at that scenario, the give and take, the impact on the Africa GDP numbers, it moves from about 3.9% to negative 7. Right. Right, which is a contraction. That's a major contraction. So when you think about the industries that will be impacted, uh, it cuts across and essentially it cuts deep also into the export uh, led sectors, which mm-hmm. is essentially the sources of Forex, right? Now, mm-hmm. when you have this level of uh, contraction, think about the economic stimulus, the African economies are able to uh, put together. The U.S. could put together 11% economic stimulus, $2.2 trillion. Mm-hmm. Well, not everybody is like the U.S., right? So if you look at Africa, essentially, most of the economic stimulus has ranged from 05 to 1.5% of GDP in terms of economic stimulus. So when you put that, essentially, you expect like a deficit of about 6%, 6 to 5.5%. Mm. When you have that deficit, it means that there's no way of uh, closing that gap, which means that once your export sector and all these other sectors are impacted, then you don't have the forex to continue importing. Of course. And if you don't have the forex to continue importing, one, you'll have to then figure out a way in which. And by the way, then also you'll have a significant dip in tax, tax collections. So, so the thing is that as countries, then we'll have to become more efficient in terms of how we use our taxes, which will essentially just be pressure based on lack of resources. So this mm-hmm. won't be around uh, restructuring that will be driven by some strategy. It will be around this is the money that we have available. This is what we're able to lead by. Second thing is, most of these countries essentially will have a unlimited ability to borrow. The reason being is that you're also seeing a lot of uh, downgrading of countries' credit that is happening at this uh, period, which means that the access to uh, debt that we had in the past may not continue. Mm-hmm. So when you look at all those things starting to crystallize, and the key thing is that you have to look inward. You have to look inward in terms of how do we start substituting imports. How do we start ensuring that we're building capacity to meet our own needs? But then as we sort that out, then we will realize that, you know what, within the African continent, we have competitive uh, advantages based on geography. So there are things Tanzania is good at that Kenya is not good at. There are things Kenya is good at that Tanzania is not good at. Mm. When the uh, option of trade is uh, significantly curtailed, then those two countries will have to talk to each other you know if you look at uh, uganda tanzania you know drc you know people will start talking to each other because the thing is that we have to find ways in which we can leverage our geographical competitive advantage and as we start leveraging that then you'll find that naturally there will be more willing partners to trade who will be your neighbors so you of course expect a spark in uh, regional trade but again this is just my own view mm. but i feel that uh when you look at how everything pans out, and that's the worst case scenario, you know, we could get into a scenario where globally there's no resurgence. And the key thing is that, you know, within Africa, there's uh, uh, low infection rates. So essentially, growth maybe moves from three and a half percent versus prior year, maybe to about one and a half percent, one to one and a half percent, which means that all will be is that 2020 will be a bad year and then 2021 will start our path to recovery. Mm. But we also have to be. Prepared that there is also an extreme scenario because, as I mentioned, strategy during this period of COVID has to be iterative.
2: Um, what's the outlook? Is it is it likely to be to be worse? I mean, are we think are we thinking that it's it's just going to be the same short term? Well, I think uh,
1: they, they, they of course with a vulnerable segment it means that you know the the countries will essentially have to go into some uh, some period where they will have to find resources to more or less uh, take care of the vulnerable. If you don't do that, you will also lose social order because am I going to sit and uh, my neighbor sits and we all watch our children starve. Mm. So there has to be uh, some sort of uh, welfare that will need to be figured out. Now the challenge is how do you fund that? Because if you look at, for example, the World Bank and, and IMF, um, all they had was, about $14 billion to help markets globally to deal with uh, COVID, and that was based on some uh, conversation that we're having, a webinar that we're having with the World Bank a few weeks back. Maybe that number has grown, but I can tell you that it will not grow materially. So, $14 billion across uh, a couple of global markets, that's not significant. So, so the key thing is that, uh, we'll need to find ways in which, uh, we can fund this and make it work. And, uh, there's all sorts of crazy ideas floating around, but the key thing is that, you know, governments will have to find the solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, if some people were talking about a diaspora for a bond, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't get money from the global markets, do you do a bond and, uh, just, uh, sell it to your, to your diaspora population? So. Oh. I mean, so there's different ways in which people are trying to think and saying, you know what, how can we plug this gap? And I think it will take a bit of uh, creative thinking to solve that, but the thing is that we have to do it.
2: This is African Retooled. I think I think there's a general sentiment that, look, um, while while things are tough, we do need to stay positive and try and figure out ways to come out of this. And I think what we all agree... Um, on the show and generally is that um, we need to look at the situation and see how do we adapt. I think what we've always been a proponent of is uh, how do you adapt, how do you retool yourself to to fit in with the new realities. And so the question to you is: there's obviously numerous opportunities um, emerging. Uh, you're you're already playing in the technology space, trying to unlock uh, opportunities and uh, resolve some of the issues in agriculture. What, in your view, are some of the opportunities uh, that uh, are emerging uh, in in, in agriculture in light of um, the current situation?
1: So, I mean, there's there's, uh, different things that we're trying out at this period. Um, You know, as we're looking at increasing yield, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things is that, you know, with Liquid Telecom, uh, we just rolled out our first fund that has uh, IoT devices, Mm -hmm. Internet of Things devices. So the thing is that right now we have uh, a chart in the office where, you know, we're getting uh, readings around uh, temperature, uh, precipitation, wind, uh, soil moisture, all in real time. So we started our fast use case, we want to see how that plays out. Uh, we'll see how fast yield uh, looks like. Again, that's a huge opportunity, as I mentioned, you know, because it's all about how do we start using information to, uh, to help better improve the yields. That are coming yeah. through from farms. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that we've always talked about uh, farmers being able to access markets. So we just launched an app. Uh, we actually launched it some time back and the thing is that with this app now we've opened it up in a way that uh, farmers now are able to download it. They can access um, the quantities that we need to buy as Trigger mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis and uh, they can bid to suppliers. And uh, and that was uh, an interesting uh, project that we launched some time back. We just opened it up to the public, we just put it out on social media, and now we're recruiting close to 300 farmers a week for registering on the platform, which I think is also very positive. There's different things. You know, the whole idea is, it's to leverage technology to remove the friction to commerce. That's the way to think about technology during this period. You know, technology is not a means at in its end. It's about leveraging technology to bring efficiency, to remove that friction. And once you remove that friction, it means that you can increase trade, but at a lower and a more affordable price.
2: Right. And what are some of the skills then? Some, I mean, we're looking at some of the numbers. So 40% unemployment rate in Africa for youth. So agriculture definitely has to be something that we look at seriously as an opportunity to uplift the youth across Africa. What are some of the skills um, young people need to be embracing if they're to prime themselves for a career in agriculture, which for, for many, they don't see it as a as a sexy career?
1: Well, the thing is that, you know, first is um, we need to go back to uh, a lot of uh, the vocational training. So we'll think about it, you know, uh, and this is uh, the piece that uh, you find very interesting. I could graduate and I've learned about uh, what coffee grows in uh, which altitude uh, I've learned about, you know, different tastes of very different things, you know, I've learned all that. Yeah. But I've never worked in a farm. But when you, when you think about it, yes, you need that agronomist who's a thought leader. But the thing is that, how do you then also build a critical mass of people who are able to come to the farm and, and really start uh, working on that? I'll give you an example. There's a farm uh, near Fika that uh, we started uh, working on uh, recently. So we planted about. Uh, so we worked with the farmer and they planted about fifty acres of bananas. And now actually, they've scaled that. Now we're talking about close to one hundred and twenty-five acres of bananas. Since since then, this is one farm. They uh, they have now employed uh, four agronomists. These are like uh, college-educated uh, agronomists and uh over and above that as we start now harvesting we have 80 casuals on the farm permanently so so when you think about it as you're creating these professional farms the ability to absorb labor is uh is very very high and that's the whole idea because the key thing is that you want to ensure that one you can absorb skilled labor so you can also absorb unskilled labor because not everybody can, uh, can maybe have the opportunity to go for vocational training. So how do you just get basic training, maybe through maybe the National Youth Service, and just get those people deployed on uh, on farms? And that's, that's the way that we can actually uh, get to self-sufficiency. And, uh, and a lot of this will be around bringing farms together, investing in irrigation equipment, and professionalizing those farms, and I feel that we can absorb a lot of uh, youth into, into some of these enterprises. You will need accountants because yes. there's a lot of costing to be done. Mm-hmm. You will need operations managers because there'll be logistics on the farm. Mm-hmm. You will need providers of uh, logistics infrastructure to move the produce from uh, the farms to the city. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you start, when you start professionalizing the production of food mm-hmm. professionally. Mm-hmm. The thing is that the ability to absorb so many people, you know, from logistics to accounting, to software developers, mm. to it can create a whole sector, yes. but you will not achieve that if all we think about agriculture is a smallholder type of farming with, um, with the aging population being the bedrock of that type of farming. Mm. We need to attract young people and new investment into this sector. Today, we're investing, we're actually importing a lot of food from Tanzania and Uganda as Kenya. So, and the key thing is that, you know, how do we then become self-reliant on uh, on food production? And becoming self-reliant is about having a lot more of this uh, large-scale uh, farms.
2: It's funny you talk about large-scale farms because there's an argument for the opposite. I mean, and, and you obviously have seen those discussions, and everyone does talk about in the investment in smallholder farmers. I think the concern is that with these large farms, you mechanize, and inevitably then it will result in job losses, or less, less jobs being created. What, 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 do you th- what do you think is is, is, there really, is there really no rationale behind building smallholder farmers? Well, the thing is that, you know,
1: uh, one is, as I mentioned, I don't like talking about smallholder farmers. I like talking about small farms. So the whole idea is how can we bring these small farms together, create ownership structures that allow for larger farms to, to be put in place. I don't know. I don't know whether you've, uh, you've ever been to Israel. No, they have this uh, kibbutz, the kibbutz uh, way of uh, farming. And what you find is that it's like a large farm with a little village in the middle. And this little village in the middle it's essentially all the landowners who've put their farms together to form a very large and very profitable farm. Mm-hmm. Within this village, you have schools, you have shopping centers, you have everything. Why? I- because the thing is that they're able to mobilize the resources from all those farms and live a very different lifestyle. And when you go to places, you know, I mean, there's some places where the farms now are like divided into a quarter, into an eighth there's no way you can uh, you can irrigate such a farm and now with a change in climate you know we have to move away from rain fed agriculture because the more we rely on rain fed agriculture i mean the, the the more unsustainable our our farming would be it rains when it's not supposed to rain and when it's supposed to rain it doesn't rain so when do you plant when don't you plant mm. and that's why we need to move to agriculture that is uh, irrigation led which means that we free ourselves of the vagaries of the weather. Because mm. the thing is that, you know, our climate is brilliant. You know, I normally joke with people that, you know, we have two types of weather in Kenya, you know, it's either hot or not so hot, <laughs> but it really never gets really cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can grow crops throughout the year. So it's an amazing place to be in, like just smack in the equator. Mm. So, and, and that's why we need to start thinking about rephrasing this narrative. and. And what I'm encouraged is, you know, right now, we're, we're part of uh, the agriculture war room. You know, we're thinking about, you know, agriculture post-COVID, as Twiga, working with the Ministry of Agriculture and a couple of other companies. And what I like is that now, the government is clearly coming out and saying, actually, we need irrigation-led agriculture. And we need to start figuring out how to invest or make or facilitate the farmers to actually transition to this type of farming.
2: I think the challenge, I mean, and, and, I, and I really do see the optimism in your approach. I think the challenge of uh, places like say, for instance, Kisi, where um, you have people buried in their ancestral homes, um, you have, um, it's, it's a very densely populated area. There's obviously going to be a lot of uh, discussions and lobbying on the ground to get people to, to agree to to let go of land where their, their their ancestors have been buried to galvanize it into one big farm.
1: But the thing is that, uh, and, 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 and the thing is that maybe there are places that uh, are not as densely populated. So for example, as you drive from maybe from Rongo to Homabe, it's not as densely populated. So the thing is that you need to do this in your ancestral piece of land. So that's why, you know, the mental model that we have has to more or less uh, shift a little bit. In that same area, if you go to places like uh, Sotique, that's where you have uh, large-scale tobacco farming. So those are large farms, not too far away from, uh, from Kisi. So it's just about ensuring that, you know, we empower people to think a little bit outside of the box.
2: And and to be honest I while while covid has indeed brought about significant devastation across the globe I think just listening to you now when you talk about the the, the fact that because of this push because we're being pushed against the wall we're going to have to start thinking differently about our food security about our sustenance long term and and Africa will need to start thinking about being able to feed itself once again because not too long ago we were feeding ourselves so i see even if it doesn't become as extreme as you described, I still think it's an opportunity for countries to once again reignite the discussions around how do we um, uh, catapult our our value chains and, 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 like you said, structure them a little bit better. I see technology playing a very big role in all of this, like you've already started doing.
1: No, I totally agree. And yeah. you see, the thing is that uh, if you think uh, about uh, many great countries, uh, they emerged from uh, the ashes through a crisis. You know, if you look at modern America, you know, what, what made modern America? And if you if you look at uh, the history of uh, the U.S., you know, there's, a, I, I'd call this it, there's two phases. There's the first phase which you call the Gilded Age. That was between the Civil War and uh, the First World War. Mm-hmm. And during that age, there was a lot of innovators and, and a lot of industrialists who yep. came up and, uh, And they helped build amazing innovations during that period. But the thing is that the U.S. was rising from the Civil War. Mm. So they had to rebuild themselves after the Civil War. And that gave you people like uh, John D. Rockefeller, people like uh, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, all those folks, Thomas Edison, all those folks came from that era. And they pushed the U.S. The U.S. between the Civil War and 1917 was a different country. Then you, of course, had the... the market crash of 1929 and the U.S. was essentially in doldrums until the first, uh, second world war. And what happened during the second world war, the thing is that the U.S. was basically still in uh, depression, but what happened is because they needed military equipment to uh, participate in the, in the second world war, they converted most of their industries into manufacturing units. And if you look at most industries that essentially had became global, they became global because of uh, the manufacturing capacity that they built during the second world war. If you look at companies like Coca-Cola, they advanced into Africa on account of the second world war. They Mm -hmm. created bottling lines that could follow the American military while they were out uh, in battle. And after the war, all those machines were then shipped to different parts of the, con- of, the, of, the, of the world to create Coca-Cola bottling plants. The first bottling plant in Kenya for Coca-Cola was in 1948 on Addis Ababa Road. Mm. That was after the Second World War. So the thing is that that crisis spurred manufacturing capacity. So the key thing is that what are we going to do with this crisis to rally ourselves
0: around something that would lift? the country out of its current situation. Uh, Peter, you were recently appointed as the Vice Chairperson of the COVID-19 ICT Advisory Committee by the Cabinet Secretary of ICT, Joe Musheru. Many people don't actually know the role of this committee. Uh, What's it going to do? Um, what, What role does it play? Maybe you could demystify this for us and how technology is going to play a role in helping us as a country deal with this crisis?
1: There is a lot of uh, technology that will be required uh, by the government during this period. And uh, this technology would essentially uh, be technology, for example, that has to do with uh, maybe uh, things like contact tracing. Is there technology or young people out there who are thinking about contract tracing maybe in a way that government can, uh, can essentially plug into that? So what type of innovations do we need during this COVID period. And what you find is that, you know, in terms of uh, the terms of reference, one of the things is, you know, what framework do we build for identifying and supporting uh, local IT solutions
2: mm-hmm. that
1: can actually help the country through this uh, pandemic? And uh, as a result of that, you know, we actually uh, published uh, a link with a way in which uh, people then can submit their applications. Uh, so far, we've received about 259 applications from uh, covering different sectors from from the economy from health from uh, business from telecommunications
0: mm-hmm. all
1: sorts of ideas mm. and some of the ideas are brilliant and the key thing is that you know maybe there was no way in which we could quickly harness these ideas so the whole idea is also how once we harness these ideas how do we help scale this you know if it's about uh, young some some of the young innovators how do we get them uh mentorship investment? How do we develop their skills? What what structures do we need to put in place to, to help us uh, do that? So all that, uh, some of the things that uh, is expected of this COVID ICT uh, uh, committee. So the other thing is that we've talked about uh, becoming a digital uh, economy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there was a blueprint that was developed. You know, there was vision 2030 mm-hmm. and these were lofty ideas. So one of the things uh, the CS was asking is, how do we bring this to become policy? So forget about it being a document that's sitting on a table Mm. in somebody's office, you know, a colorful document. How do we bring this to life? What do we need to do uh, as a country? So those are the things that we're thinking about. Or how do you then do this in a way that also starts building a culture around intellectual property and protecting intellectual property? Mm-hmm. So when you think about all these things, it's about helping uh, young Kenyans with ideas, but not just young Kenyans. Let's say Kenyans in general. Kenyans in general with ideas around digitization, just saying, come forth and, uh, and present those ideas. And then we figure out a way in which we can then work together to make those ideas come to life.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, of
1: course, it's not about the committee implementing these ideas. Yes. The key thing for us is to create frameworks. That mm-hmm. allows those ideas to see day of uh, to see to see day. So if it means that you know there's somebody in health, we know the committee that you need to deal with in health, not to actually just send your proposal to an email where mm-hmm. maybe that email will go unresponded to. So sure. you know, for us, at least all the proposals that have come in, we've tried to respond within 48 hours, and then from there, giving you a clear path forward in terms of how we're going to take this forward. So again, it's just changing how we're thinking about digitization, how we're thinking about technology, and how we help the CS bring this to life. And it's a group that comes from uh, both the uh, public and private sector.
2: Very encouraging, honestly. I'm, I mean, I'm just hoping that um, our listeners are are going to be inspired to to send in some, some ideas to you, Peter, through the Secretariat.
0: No, looking forward to that. Yeah, I think I think uh, this has been a really eye-opening and inspiring conversation. Um, we are really, really grateful uh, for you taking the time uh, to speak to us and to give us insights um, into this this wonderful world of, of agriculture. And I hope um, it, it gets more people thinking, even through this. Um, you, you know, uh, thinking about innovations, as you've said. Um, you know, not just in agribusiness, but in, in, in all other areas and, and will emerge all the better for that. Perhaps a parting shot, Martin? Yes, yes, yes. If you have, if you have something that you'd like to, to leave with our listeners, uh, you know, one last sort of parting shot to help us through this period.
1: Well, the thing is that, you know, uh, my parting shot, uh, I think, is uh, something that uh, has inspired me from... Uh, the book uh, The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. You Mm. know, if you want something badly enough, the universe will conspire to give it to you. Mm. So we have to aspire for a better country. We have to aspire for a better future. And uh, if we aspire hard enough, I think the universe will conspire to uh, make our vision and our realities, all of our visions come, come to reality. Amazing.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Couldn't ask for a better way to end this show. Thank you so much, Peter.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening in. Go ahead now and subscribe to African Retooled on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. We're excited to hear from you. Send your comments and questions to AfricanRetooled at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter and Instagram on African Retooled. Until then, keep learning, keep growing, keep retooling.